Welcome, folks and fam of all walks and talks to the LP Podcast, Literature in Practice, brought to you by Unbound Ed. I'm your host and co-learner, Brandon White, inviting you to listen in as we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to become more grade-level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. For too long, Receiving an education in the United States has been a dangerous and revolutionary act for African Americans. Becoming authentically literate in the written word, history, math, and the sciences was a literal and psychological escape to freedom. Exploring who led these efforts, how they led these efforts, and what we can apply from them today is important and undervalued work that can change how we do education. This is the work of author Jarvis Givens, who joins me to discuss his book, Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching. This is the LP. Ladies and gentlemen, when I tell y'all that I am very excited for this next guest, I've been excited about all of them, but I'm not going to front. <laughs> no more excited for this one. It's because it speaks really, uh, the, the text speaks to my identity in a really core way. Professor Givens is an educator and author. He is an assistant professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He uh, obtained his bachelor's in business and then moved on to get his master's in African-American and Black Studies. And then he went on to get his doctorate of philosophy in African Diaspora Studies. He is a co-founder of the Black Teacher Project, which specializes in the digitization of a complete collection of journals published by colored teachers associations between the 1920s the 1970s and good brother i'm gonna need a password to get up in there real quick i don't need a netflix password i don't need a hulu password i need a password for that ladies and gentlemen straight out of compton brother jarvis givens how you doing sir i'm doing good brandon it's good to be here with you so before we hop into the questions one thing i do like asking all podcast guests because says a lot about you know our literacy journeys as professionals who end up being authors what was your favorite text as a kid if you had one what was your favorite if you had one as an adolescent? And what was your favorite as an adult? Hmm. The first book that comes to mind, I have the, the cover of the book in my mind. Uh, it's actually was like an anthology. It was called Make a Joyful Sound. I believe it was Eloise Greenfield who like who, who put the kind of anthology together. But it was a gift I feel like my mom bought for me. I think she ordered it like out of like a magazine. But I remember getting that. Um, book and it was a collection of African-American poems and I think short stories but I just remember like anytime I would like open that book and flip to a certain page like not only the images of like black children being these kind of beautiful images and these beautiful scenes but a lot of the kind of words in the text always seemed to jump off the page at me and I enjoyed reading them out loud. I feel like that was a text that I interacted with in a number of different ways and it I, it uh, really stands out in my mind. If we're going to talk about after that like when I you know got to like high school and stuff, I really became a huge fan of Harry Potter, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, Harry Potter was probably one of the first, you know, books that I remember, a series that I remember like really getting into. And we used to have these book fairs at the school I went to from preschool through eighth grade. But I remember buying the third book in the Harry Potter series and reading it over the summer between like eighth grade and the start of ninth grade. And then in high school, I just became super interested in reading those books. And, uh, yeah, so so that that's that's a book that really allowed me to explore like the genre of like fantasy and uh, when it comes to fiction and stuff like that, and I really enjoyed that. And I would also say Song of Solomon is probably one of the texts that really stood out to me 
when I was in high school as well. But when I got to college, I would have to say the miseducation of the Negro in many ways was a text that I found myself returning to for a number of reasons. And I didn't, that wasn't a formally assigned book in class, but that was a book that I read for the first time in a student, a black student organization. It was kind of required reading. And I just remember reading the book and it resonating with me on all sorts of levels. And yeah, so th those are the three books that come to mind, I would say. Um, very uh, different books, perhaps maybe the Harry Potter is the one that's the kind of like outlier, but it was, I think it was important for my own kind of like scholarly and intellectual development as, as a reader. Mirrors and windows, good brother, mirrors and windows, right? You know, Harry Potter has definitely been like a big window text for a lot of folks. Um, Terms of like expanding, like, you know, thinking and, you know, uh, creative thought. And then you got your mirrors, right? Your Gwendolyn Brooks and your Carter G's, right? Which set the tone for you to write this book to talk about his fugitive pedagogy. So I want to ask uh, a question about what you mean by fugitive pedagogy, right? For those who are not in the education space, pedagogy essentially means the science of teaching and providing instruction. When you say fugitive pedagogy, you know, you think of, you know, a fugitive, somebody who's escaping something and in an escape, trying to go to somewhere else. What are you submitting that we're trying to escape? And where are we running towards when we practice fugitive pedagogy? So I want to take a step back and begin by saying that the word fugitive pedagogy is, is first and foremost my effort to ground the historicization of Black schooling and Black education in the history of Black fugitive life and particularly fugitive slaves. You know, one of the most iconic narratives that we have to look to is the story of Frederick Douglass if we, if you've ever read My Bondage, My Freedom, or the narrative in the life of Frederick Douglass, right, he talks explicitly about his encounter with education as an enslaved young man and learning about both the criminalization of Black education, but also how the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of education was inextricably linked to his pursuit of freedom as well. And so what we see is that in, you know, across narratives written by fugitive slaves, which are in many ways the foundation of the Black intellectual tradition in written form, right? Because the first texts produced by African-Americans were slave narratives. They become the foundation of Black studies in many ways and of an educational tradition. One of the core themes in those texts are always this link between education and freedom that we see escape slaves working through in their own personal narratives. Uh, and so this idea of fugitive pedagogy is about naming this politics of education that derives in the context of slavery and that is in many ways embodied in the life of fugitive slaves like Frederick Douglass, like someone like Susie King Taylor, who was also you know, in Savannah, Georgia, who secretly learned to read and write. Um, and then many of these folks becoming important educators and important intellectual kind of leaders. So that's on one hand, it's literally tying the kind of politics of Black education to that legacy of fugitive slaves. And I should say, I first started to work through that idea when I was analyzing textbooks written by Black school teachers. Carter G. Woodson, who's the central figure in my book, wrote textbooks beginning in 1922, but there were plenty of Black teachers before him that also wrote textbooks. And across these textbooks, we see these teachers commemorating the lives of fugitive slaves as these important folk heroes in Black life and culture, right? And presenting the stories of fugitive slaves as important political heroes and as representing something important for the educational project that they were kind of, you know, working to enact. And then when I encountered, you know, narratives like the narrative that opens my book, where you have a teacher secretly reading from Carter G. Woodson's textbook, the very same textbook that's documenting the fugitive practices of Black enslaved people, 
right? Both in terms of running away, but also their secret educational practices. And she herself in the 1930s is secretly reading from this book because of the kind of censorship that black teachers were, were under. I'm offering the language of fugitive pedagogy to say that there continue to be important aspects of black education that African-Americans pursued subversively and oftentimes in secret because of the ongoing resistance and, and restrictions imposed on black education, even after slavery was abolished, right? So fugitive pedagogy is pointing to that. It's a running, if, you, if it's running away, right? It's about, it's about defying and refusing the, the strictures imposed on black life in the context first of a society ordered by slavery, ordered by racial chattel slavery to be specific, but then also in the post-emancipation period, it's still black people, you know, seeking out a more kind of, a more kind of justice oriented vision of the world where the society that they live in is not premised on their suffering and on their kind of ongoing subjugation, right? And so it's, it's a pursuit of an educational model that places that political imperative at the forefront, right? where education is about more than just subject area expertise and become, you know, obtain, you know, creating more black professionals, but it's also, it's, a, it's about a freedom seeking project, the same way that fugitive slaves were pursuing freedom. And that was their kind of ultimate objective, right? So it's an education in pursuit of freedom and the language holds in place, like the, the real material history of fugitive slaves and their connection to education and this ongoing set of practices that Black people are employing to navigate constraints, right? Sometimes in secret and other times out in the open, um, but it's still being connected to this much longer history. So that's what I'm under, that's what I'm putting forward the language to describe and to talk about. To see how that legacy and those strands of behavior of like literacy for freedom and freedom for literacy, right? like that you kind of describe being enacted in a wide variety of ways, right? Uh, from Carter G. Woodson's creation of textbooks, which I didn't know until I was a grown man <laughs> that happened. And I didn't realize how extensive it was until I read your book uh, to the you know teacher doing a, a subversive education uh, program, right? Uh, where she has to keep her Carter G. Woodson book in her lap. And it's, and it's also, another point, it's like important to lift up here is like, because sometimes I have to emphasize the fact that I don't just offer the language of fugitive pedagogy like as a metaphor, but it's yeah. actually, it's it's talking serious, it's taking seriously the work of actual like fugitive slaves, right? So the first black author textbook was written by James W.C. Pennington. James W.C. Pennington was an escaped slave from Maryland who wrote the first black author textbook in 1841, right? A textbook on the origins um, in history of the colored people. And he was a school teacher at the African Free School in Connecticut in the 1840s during the time period that he wrote that textbook. He was also a fugitive slave and wrote a slave narrative called The Fugitive Blacksmith, right? So what I'm also saying, be even beyond the like hiding of the textbook and all this sort of stuff is not just about the physical negotiation of constraints, but it's also, fugitive pedagogy is also about the intellectual work that Black people are doing to construct a new system of knowledge and working to develop a new curricular foundation and basis for schooling and education itself, right? To be, to serve in the interest of what they understand education be doing if it's about a, a freedom seeking project, right? It means it's, it's also about working through ideas and developing new ideas and new assessments and analysis of the social world that they're navigating and that being the basis of the educational project that they're trying to enact. 
So it's not just about secretly reading from texts and things like that, but it's also about the deep intellectual struggle that these teachers are engaging in. And that's tied to the deep intellectual engagement that we see, you know, fugitive slaves working through both in practice and them kind of running away and insisting that they are more than the property of someone else, right? And then writing that in their narratives and conceptualizing, you know, ideas about the world based on their lived experiences. That also is a part of this fugitive pedagogical project that I'm talking about. And that becomes embodied in that teacher like Tessie McGee secretly reading from that textbook in front of her students. So that it's not even just about the content of the textbook itself, but it's also about what her act of secretly reading that textbook means and communicates to her students that are watching her. Definitely. We're gonna go back to 1990s, perhaps 2000s, where Mm -hmm. Professor Gibbons was just Jarvis. Jarvis attended a predominantly black parochial school in Compton, California. Your experience having predominantly African-American teachers, what acts of fugitive pedagogy did you see when you were coming up as a student? Yeah, so I would say that these were the teachers that I had were not actively understanding the work that they were doing, at least not to my knowledge, were not understanding the work that they were doing directly in relationship to folks like Carter G. Woodson and the teachers that I write about. But what I've come to realize is that many of them were the product of the kind of the teachings of African-American educators without knowing the kind of broader context that these teachers operated in for the most part. Maybe they did know that and they just didn't make it explicit. But but even in following up with many of them, I think that they've been uh, shocked to learn a lot of the stuff that I reveal in my book themselves um, in terms of talking about this expansive networked world. But even as they were not actively, you know, operating in this this longer tradition, they were approaching the teach, you know, teaching black students in Compton with this, with a kind of political clarity that I think is consistent with fugitive pedagogy, where they understood the work that they were doing to be more about just the kind of traditional metrics of accountability that we tend to see emphasized in schools, but that they understood their work as teachers of black students in an urban environment like Compton, um, surrounded by kind of aggressive neglect in the city as being about working to kind of pour into Black students so that we would understand our mission in the world as beyond our individual success, but about a kind of a collective striving. I think that that very kind of set of political priorities when it comes to teaching uh, is consistent with this longer tradition that I'm writing about. But I would also say that they cultivated a kind of an awareness of anti-Blackness in the world that is consistent with fugitive pedagogy as well, right? Even when it wasn't an explicit part of the curriculum, there were ways that they helped us as Black students become aware of certain structural forces in the world that would be, that, that that would work to kind of undermine our efforts to achieve success, right, in collective flourishing. So this was, this happened when we saw like certain things happen in the world, right, and the the teachers kind of naming the realities of kind of racism and anti-Blackness, right? Even if they didn't use the term anti-Blackness, we knew that when they were talking about racism, it was explicitly about not just a kind of broad racism, but it was particularly about a disdain for, for Black life and Black people in particular. And I feel like that kind of political clarity and awareness was them offering us, you know, important social analysis of the world to help us be aware of what it was that we were up against, right? 
um, that that moved that went beyond just the kind of standard curriculum of schooling in the context of the U.S. Um, you know, but also them emphasizing important aspects of African American history and culture in the context of the school was also them teaching against the grain of the status quo in the context of U.S. schools. So those are some of the ways that I would say we see this legacy of like a fugitive pedagogy showing up in the teachers that I had. Right, I can think of one of my high my high school U.S. history teacher. She's an African-American woman. She taught our US history class when we were in the 11th grade. And our, you know, our main assignment over the course of the year, we had to use the required textbook. But throughout the year, we were also constantly, um, we were building our own individual textbook where we were researching information that was not included in the textbook and essentially writing and developing our own textbook that was a critique of the adopted textbook that we were using in LAUSD. What I'm trying to say is that it wasn't this kind of like explicit, intentional, in your face kind of, you know, we're doing anti-racist pedagogy here, X, Y, and Z. Like that's not what it was. It was a lot more subtle and it was integrated into the kind of the, the social infrastructure and fabric of the schools where the social analysis of, of race and inequality came across in the kind of, in the conversations that teachers had with students that made us aware of our surroundings and of ourselves in relationship to the world in a way that was a part of the curriculum, even if it wasn't explicitly written out all the time in terms of the text. No doubt, man. Well, like as, as you were explaining that, I, I get so fascinated by like sometimes a, a culture's ability to still claim things without having the name for it, mm -hmm. right? It, it's, it's still being embedded as a legacy even if you don't really know, you know, how to describe it, what to call it, come up with your own iteration or name for it in whatever, you know, 20th century, 21st century, 22nd century context. It's just these ways of being and doing legacies that just get, you know, uh, passed down from generation to generation. You know, when I was teaching, not having terms, but doing a lot of the things or trying my best to do a lot of the things that are described in this book, that's what hit me so hard. I was like, wait, I've been in that situation. Like, all right, thank you. Thanks for stopping by the classroom. All right, y'all, this is what we're about to do. You know, from the time I was in preschool until the time I graduated from eighth grade and went to high school, every morning before we started school at that the school that I attended in Compton, uh, where it was all African-American teachers, majority of them were Southern migrants who were educated in the Jim Crow South, um, particularly the principal of the school was from Louisiana. But, you know, they established a school culture where there were very clear rituals and routines that were embedded into the kind of the, the culture of the school, right? For instance, where we like sang the, you know, lift every voice and sing every single morning and recited poems by African-American uh, authors, right? So things like Dreams by Langston Hughes that we recited, you know, every single morning of my life from the time I was in preschool until I graduated from eighth grade. And then I went to high school and I realized that many of the folks that were there had never heard of the Black National Anthem or knew any of the lyrics or, and, and, you know, and certainly didn't come from a school culture that was so grounded in like Black cultural and, and, and political life in the ways that our school was, right? That is something, you know, I, I would say that that is an extension of this tradition of fugitive pedagogy because those poems and lift every voice and sing, like the history of those cultural artifacts and the literal like words to the songs and to the poems are, are actually important resources, right? When we actually sit 
and take those words apart and think about what it means for like African-American children to recite and to kind of sing those words every morning as they're kind of preparing themselves in their minds to kind of go and engage in the project of learning and education, right? That was a, that was a way of grounding our education in a tradition, even when I didn't, as a child, really know why exactly we were doing that. It was kind of a part of the context, but it was something that was empowering and that also connected me to a much longer tradition and all the other students that attended schools, but also the teachers. And when I went back and asked the teachers, why did they do that? You know, and the principal was like, oh, because that's, you know, we, you know, we were just doing what we knew, right? These were things that we understood to be important elements of, of a kind of, uh, you know, a school that valued co Black cultural life, right? These were things that we experienced growing up. You know, she talked about her own experiences, um, but also this was important for establishing a culture of achievement among Black students, right? Those songs and those poems are a part of that legacy. You know, when I'm writing a book about the history of Black teachers and I'm saying, oh, James Weldon Johnson was a teacher when he wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing. The first time it was introduced to the world, it was 500 Black students in Florida who were singing this song. And it was because of the students and Black teachers that this song spread that we even have it and know it today as the Black National Anthem. Yeah. Yeah, man. The, the power to transmit things without necessarily having a name for them. A, a book like this and a, and, a, and a lot of books in education, for me, are, are extremely helpful in reclaiming a legacy to make sure I'm on point and I'm on track and I can see where we've been and have a clearer definition of what is already innately there. And, and I, I just find it so powerful that a seed, even if a seed doesn't have a name, it will still, if it's in the right environment, it will still grow into whatever it needs to grow into and bear the fruit that it needs to bear, right? And, and in your environment, there, was, there weren't names, right? There, there, there weren't frameworks, but they inherited these seeds of legacies and they were able to grow them out in a way that where they bore fruit, where somebody like yourself can now be on this mission to have this reclamation of these seeds so people can really understand what these seeds are about. But I want to, I do want to say, you know, it wasn't just by happenstance that these things were developed, right? Because the teachers that cultivated these kind of pedagogical traditions were, were very intentional. It wasn't just something that was just innate in them and it just kind of came out. These were teachers who were engaging in deep intellectual struggle and in, in, in thinking about what constitutes a meaningful education in the lives of Black students? Do we understand to be the highest demands of our work as Black teachers in this moment, in this political context that we find ourselves in? And they're intentionally creating these resources. Like, like I said, James Wilden Johnson was a principal at the very same high school that he had graduated from, that where his mother was a teacher, where his brother was also a teacher, right? Uh, the same school that he's seen you know, local white townspeople allowed to burn down to the ground, you know, when there's this kind of major town fire because it was not deemed as valuable as the kind of houses of elite whites in the city, right? And white, you know, black students and the black teachers witnessing their school burn down. But you have someone like James Weldon Johnson who writes this song. There's a clear kind of reflection on the kind of tortured realities of black life, but also this hopeful project that someone like James Weldon Johnson as a political leader, as an educator, as the president of the Florida State Teachers Association is engaging in, right? And then teachers writing textbooks. They didn't just write textbooks because they just thought that's what you did. That was not, that was, you know, not, you know, uh, 
common for black teachers to kind of write textbooks and then publish them and then find ways for them to be circulated in black schools. But that's because they were intentionally creating networks because they had an awareness that the students they were serving needed more than what was offered in terms of the kind of stock resources for American education. And in fact, the, the kind of you know resources that are widely made available in the American school in many ways undermined the very project that they understood themselves to be engaging in. And so it wasn't, you know, it was a lot of intentional practice and intentional planning that Black teachers were doing in these networks. And that, that term you mentioned, insurgent intellectual networks, that comes from the sociologist Alden Morris, where he's talking about someone like Du Bois, right? This is from Alden Morris's book about, it's called The Scholar Denied, and how Du Bois developed um, modern sociology, even though he's not often... Mm -hmm credit for that, because even though Du Bois and other scholars like, you know, Woodson, who were excluded from mainstream academic organizations like the American Historical Association or the American Sociological Association, right, they were not, in, even though they had doctorate degrees, they were not allowed, they were not included in those mainstream academic organizations or mainstream white U.S. institutions of higher education, but they created these institutions on their own where they worked to engage in the in rigorous study and intellectual engagement um, in these spaces that they created, in these counter public spaces that they created. And he talks about that there is this insurgency because they understood the academic and the research that they were doing to be directly connected to challenging racial violence and the kind of realities of anti-Blackness in the society that they lived in, right? And so that term insurgent intellectual networks is about these counter intellectual organizations and spaces and networks that black scholars created on their own with very with very little resources um and very little support from main from mainstream kind of institutions of higher education yeah no doubt and to hear and read about those which again news to me right when i came into education had no idea these things existed um but you know found out later and you know my continuation of finding out uh, was through your book of the intentional erasure of these networks, right? Um, and and all this uh, communal work around education. It, it's it's amazing to see that all that intentionality got erased. Yet and still, there there are things that were still passed on intergenerationally to allow your teachers to show up the way that they showed up, allowed you to show up the way you showed up and have allowed me to show up the way to show up. And now we're able to even amplify that better and further through the likes of uh, your book. Quick question. You learn about Carter G. Woodson as the Black History Month man in high school, maybe if you're lucky. And then you find out about the miseducation of the Negro, maybe if you're lucky later. But then you definitely don't know a whole lot about his life path the other things that he wrote, the other subversive work that he did through uh, Future to Pedagogy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Mary McLeod Bethune is another one for me. Why well, didn't, uh, to, to me for Black History Month, she was like, oh, she was the lady that made a school and did good things, right? Um, but there's all these folks who uh, through their work as educators practice something called communal literacy. Um, this is a very important concept and important tenet of fugitive pedagogy, it seems like, uh, that you name in the book. Can you explain to the folks what is it? And then can you also explain to the folks how can this practice help modern day classrooms? Uh, yeah, thanks Thanks for that question. Yeah, the you know, the 
phenomenon of, of communal literacy is important for a number of reasons. One, for me, it became immediately important because in Carter G. Woodson's own life, when he was a child, he was required to read newspapers to his father, who was, you know, formerly enslaved and who was illiterate. Um, he's, you know, read newspapers to his father, you know, allowed up, up until the time he was 20 years old. But also when Carter G. Woodson was a teenager, he worked in the coal mines in West Virginia with, you know, black coal miners, many of whom were Civil War veterans who were also illiterate. And after long days of working in the coal mines, they would pay him in the evenings to come and to read to them from black newspapers, mainstream newspapers, but also black author texts. And one of the things that Woodson emphasized was that when reading these texts out loud to these, uh, these, these men that he worked along, these adult men who he worked alongside, it wasn't just them taking in the information, but it was also them speaking backs and interacting with the literate world, right? Mm -hmm. So where he, his ability to decipher words on the page, right? His ability, his technical literacy allowed these men to put their proper literacy to work and in interacting with the, the written word that they wouldn't have been able to access otherwise, right? And it's important because when we think about it one broadens our perspective when we have to think about the kind of educational context of of black people right and this is an important practice even during the period of slavery where someone who is an enslaved person who can read and write you know was deemed a leader within their communities not only because it was impressive but because they could use that hard earned oftentimes secretly acquired gift to work in the bit to the benefit of the larger community right so this meant this translated to, you know, someone like Susie King Taylor or William Sanders Scarborough, um, who were enslaved as children who learned to read and write secretly, who would forge passes for enslaved men to go and visit their their wife and their children um, on other plantations because they were in abroad marriages. Abroad marriages mean that you know uh, one person in the marriage is owned by one lives on one plantation and their spouse might live on another plantation. Right. And they would often have to get permission to go and see their families. So these idea of abroad marriages was um, fairly common, you know, when it comes to enslaved people. But in order to be able to kind of move across spaces and, you know, like a, a, across space required a pass. Right. And sometimes it required securing a pass illegally, but also forging uh, escape passes. Right. But also reading letters out loud or reading from newspapers out loud about abolitionist organizing, or we can think about something like David Walker's Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, which is published in 1829, and that circulated, and, and he encouraged, you know, literate Black people to not just read the text for themselves, but to read it in the hearing of other enslaved and free Black people who may not have been able to read the text on their own. What I'm saying all this to say is that literacy and education, as it develops in this context among enslaved people, develops as a communal phenomenon, right? And it develops at this kind of communal ethic around literacy and education, where we see literacy is not just something about individual success and individual striving, but it's also understood, you know, as a, as a communal resource. And that, I would say, transfers to the post-emancipation period when we see someone like Carter G. Woodson using his literacy in service of the kind of larger community around him, but also Mary McLeod Bethune talks about, you know, her, um, her using her education as a child um, for the benefit of her large, of the larger community in Maysville, uh, South Carolina, and the community looking to her to use that education in service of 
their collective interests in that way. So that that's that's what communal literacy is, both at in terms of like a technical level, right? The use of one's literacy for communal ends, right, and for a collective benefit, but it also has to do with a kind of foundational uh, idea and, and tenet, I would say, in, in the heritage of Black education more broadly, where education is not just about individual uh, efforts at kind of social mobility, but it is about a collective striving. So for all the uh, instructional nerds out there, all the ELA nerds out there, let me, let me further expound on what Professor Givens just explained. He explained ELA exercises, English literacy language exercises that emphasize fluency, productive struggle, decoding letters while at the same time decoding meaning, but not just meaning of any random text, but text that can be used to pass on to the benefit to the individual and community in a way that's asset-based and collaborative. That could be happening in classrooms across America should we choose to learn lessons from the communal learning taking from fugitive pedagogy. Um, and seeing those play out with uh, the coal miners in your book, I, I was just like, this is, this is what I would want to happen in every classroom in America. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. It's, it's a rigorous experience. It's a relational experience and it's a relevant experience. Mm -hmm. That's that's what education should be. Yeah, and it's it's embodied in so many of the narratives that we get from you know in the slave narratives after that are recorded after the Civil War, but actually, actually some of the narratives that come um, even during the period of enslavement. For instance, Frederick Douglass helping to establish a Sabbath school that, you know, when it's found out is kind of broken up and he's threatened because he's seen as wanting to be a Nat Turner, right? And his life is threatened by the white men that break up this school that he's running. Um, I believe it was in the home of like a local black minister, um, but also enslaved people who secretly learn to read and write. And, you know, there's a woman named Mandy Jones from who was enslaved in Mississippi. And she said, you know, if there was, you know, some black person on the plantation, if they had, you know, uh, some learning, right, they would go and they would climb into, they have, would have these schools and pits in the ground in the woods, and they would have a school, right, to try to share the information and the knowledge that they're gaining in terms of being able to read and, you know, decipher the written word and to kind of put that, use that in service of the kind of broader community for others who would be willing to take the risk to learn to read and write as well. And so that, you know, or even you think some of the kind of organized organized uh, slave revolts, right? Um, there is one of the co-conspirators for Denmark, uh, excuse me, for uh, Gabriel Prosser talked about, you know, him reading this excerpt from a newspaper in their hearing about the Haitian Revolution um, and them learning about the Haitian Revolution as a part, you know, him reading this to them in their hearing as they're working to kind of organize this slave revolt or for interpreting the Bible. Right, wanting to have the ability to interpret scripture because they were suspicious of the of the interpretation of the Bible that white people offered to them. You know, when they had to rely on white people to read from the Bible to them and offer their interpretation. Right, enslaved people saying, "I believe there's another Bible inside of that Bible, and we want to have our own interpretation of the scripture." Right, and that also being a motivation for people to engage in these communal literacy practices and to learn to read and write. For sure. You know, you, you've said a, a few things that I feel like are important to raise up um, real fast. 
one, this idea, you know, across the country for at least what, 50, 60 years, there's been this undercurrent of thought that says black people don't care about their education. And this entire conversation, you have gone over how slave revolt leaders are all often literate ones. You've gone over uh, the pit schools being so uh, ambitious to learn that you decide to learn in the pit in the ground. You talk about how schools got burned down. And I think in the book, you talk about like an insane number of uh, schools being burned down, like hundreds, something crazy. Between um, 18, between 1866 and 1876, about 630 schools were burned down in the Southern states. Yes. 630 schools burned down, yet we still kept building them. We still kept writing books. We still kept writing textbooks and we still develop these uh, insurgent intellectual networks and other, in today's language we'd use, you know, professional learning networks of us as uh, black teachers. Yet and still, we're people who don't want to learn, don't care about education. And also the, the literate one was often the leader in the community, as you noted, to pass that on to other people, yet we still don't care about education. It don't add up, good brother. I think we have a lot of history and a lot of context to learn from and lessons that we can draw on to try to, you know, do the, to do better, right? That that's something that we have to kind of hold up is that very point that you just raised. Professor Givens, I greatly appreciate you being on here. I have uh, a final question. How does your text help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful for students? And I invite you to answer that question from the lens of seeing what that looks like in the school called Fugitive Pedagogy Academy. What's happening in there that is making classrooms and instruction grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful? Well, I think it would probably be a healthy balance between understanding what's developmentally, what's developmentally appropriate for students at various ages, but also having, and you know, and also prioritizing the social context that the students that are in these classes are coming from and making sure that that's equally accounted for in developing the curriculum to, to you know, to, to serve the, the students that are in front of you. And so that means valuing more than just what's identified as important kind of learning goals and objectives based on the development, developmental needs of students at various ages, um, but also thinking about ha having a political clarity around what it is that these students that are in front of you are up against in the world around them and that they're constantly having to navigate and, and allowing that to also inform content practice and, and the objectives of what learning is supposed to be doing, right? Um, and, I would, and I would say that, that that last part should be, should, should take precedent over everything else. And that, that doesn't mean that you abandon like standards and that you abandon, you know, learning objectives, but it means that you prioritize the, the immediate needs, the short-term and long-term kind of goals of, of students and political needs of students when you're thinking about your pedagogy. And I think that requires a kind of ongoing self-reflection when it comes to teachers and school leaders um, to, be, to be responsive in that way. Folks and fam, that was Professor Jarvis Givens. Thank you so much, good sir, for being on the show.
If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge within your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at unboundedu. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP. Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.